0: Love is an attribute of God, is foundational to our understanding of who God is and why he does what he does. Love is a motive that tempers and fuels all that God does in his interaction with humanity. Next week is Easter Sunday, where we celebrate the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we have to answer, we have to be sure that we know why Jesus came to earth. Why did Jesus die? Well, it was God's love for humanity that motivated these actions. We cannot understand the gospel without understanding God's love. We cannot really even understand God without understanding God's love. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we have to have a grasp on the greatness of God's love as we seek to connect people to God through faith in Jesus Christ those that we're inviting to come next week and praying that they come and praying that they're saved, they are people that God loves. We have to be fully convinced of this. We must believe without shadow of a doubt that these are people that God really does love. But as disciples of Jesus Christ, we must not only be able to say, yes, God loves you, but we have to be able to explain how they can be sure that God loves them. But at the same time, when we do talk to people about the fact that God loves them, there are some that really aren't astounded by this idea. I mean, why wouldn't God love them? They're Americans. They're basically good people. They're good enough. They're smart enough. And doggone it, people just like them. What's not to love? But as disciples of Jesus Christ, we also must be able to explain to them why it is so amazing that God would love them. The text that we're going to look at this morning... It will equip us to answer these questions. It will give us a better understanding of the greatness of God's love for humanity so that we can share this love with others. Open your Bible to Romans chapter 5. Verse 6 is where we're going to start. That's page 860 if you have a pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's word. Romans 5 and 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, Having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were His enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. The title of the message this morning is The Relentless Love of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. And God, we are thankful that you love us. Father, we are amazed that as you looked down from heaven and you saw all of our lives and all that we would do and all the ways that we would rebel against you. That God, you loved and you cared and you, you wanted something better for us than we wanted for ourselves. You wanted something better for us than we could plan or even imagine for ourselves. Father, we are thankful that Jesus came and that he died to pay the penalty that our sins deserve. We are thankful that Jesus rose from the dead and that because of that, our sins can be forgiven. We can have eternal life. Father, we are thankful today for the privilege of being able to To gather here to worship You in song, to study Your Word, to to try to come to an understanding of how great Your love really is. Father Paul said that we should do all that we can to understand the height and the width and the depth and the breadth of Your love, even though it is too great for us to fully comprehend. Today, as we look at this passage, let our minds be open to Your Word. Let our hearts be receptive to what You have for us. Father, remind us of how great your love for us is. Father, astound us with how great your love for us is. Revive our hearts. Renew our spirits. Draw us closer to you. Father, let us leave here today in greater amazement of all that you have done for us than we have ever been in our lives. Fill this place with your spirit and your glory. Let us know that you are here. Guide me that I would speak your words and your ways for your glory. And I would not be a hindrance in any way to what you once said. Guide us that we would respond in ways that demonstrate that Jesus is Lord over our lives. We ask in his mighty name. Amen. You may be seated. Now this passage, it does emphasize the relentless nature of God's love for humanity. God's love for humanity is such that he does not give give up on us. He pursues us in love. He proves His love. He gives in love. And how can we be sure of this? We'll look at verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love toward us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is kind of the, the key verse for this section. How can anyone be sure that God loves them? Look at the cross. Why should anyone be amazed that God loves them? Look at the cross, right? And so what we want to know is that the cross demonstrates God's relentless love for humanity. In this passage, it gives us three characteristics of God's love that should move us to worship the God of love and inspire us to share the love of God. The first is that God's love is boundless. God's love is boundless. As Paul writes about God's relentless love for humanity, he uses words to describe humanity that we don't often associate with the idea of love. Yet understanding these words is crucial to our being able to understand God's love and the gospel. By understanding these words, we can assure others and ourselves that God indeed loves us and loves them. By understanding these words, we can show the proud why God's love for them is so amazing. But there's three three terms that we're going to look at that demonstrate God's boundless love, right? The first is that God loves the powerless. If you look at verse 6, Paul says, "For when we were without strength." Now, have you ever had a time when you were physically powerless to overcome a problem? Imagine being under a weight that you cannot get off of yourself. It's a crushing weight. Because it's a crushing weight, it's a fear inducing weight. You struggle. You try. You do all that you can. But no matter how much you move, or how hard you press, or how loud you scream out, you are unable to get the weight off of your chest. You are completely powerless to get this weight off of you. That's the picture that Paul was painting in verse 6 when he talks about being without strength. The main difference is that Paul was not speaking about lacking physical strength, but lacking spiritual strength. He's not talking about not being strong enough to make a physical change, but being so spiritually powerless that we cannot make spiritual changes. We are powerless regarding spiritual things. According to Scripture, we are powerless to understand the things of God. According to Scripture, we are powerless to see or to enter the kingdom of God. We are powerless to seek God. We are powerless to please God. We are powerless to do good. And we are powerless to do these things because, according to Ephesians, we are spiritually dead. All of humanity is naturally spiritually dead because of trespasses and sin. Now, it's common in our day for some to say, well, well, humanity, we are sin sick. And in this view, people are not where they ought to be. Right? They, they are not well, but the situation is not hopeless. All people are at least still partially alive. And as long as they're partially spiritually alive, then maybe they can make changes to fix their problem. Maybe they can turn over a new leaf. Maybe they can educate themselves. Maybe they can be religious or more moral. And they can turn things around and fix the problem in their life. But that's not the picture that Scripture paints. Scripture does not say that we are sin sick. Scripture says that we are sin dead. We are as powerless to change our spiritual condition as a dead man is to change his circumstances. Despite the fact that we are powerless, we are unable to fix even the smallest of our spiritual problems. God loves the powerless. But God also loves the godless. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, the word ungodly is a very strong word, and it meant we are very unlike God. It carries with it the idea of rebellion against God. God is the sovereign ruler of the universe, but we oppose his rule in our lives. We don't want God to rule over our lives. Instead, we want to do whatever we want to do without regard to what God has said. We know that the Bible says God is holy, but we oppose that holiness. We reject His righteous moral standards. Instead, we demand that we live however we want without anything we do being called into question. God is omniscient, but we despise His omniscience. The all-knowing God has said we are powerless and godless and sinners, but we despise those terms. How dare anyone classify us by those names? We become angry, we reject that these things are true of us. Yet despite this rebellion, despite our ungodliness, God loves the godless. And then God loves the sinner in verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love toward us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That we are sinners means that we have all fallen short of God's righteous standards. And the word that's used for fallen short, it means to miss the mark. It pictures an archer or a marksman shooting at a target, trying to hit the bullseye, but missing the mark. They could have missed the mark by very little or could have missed the target altogether. doesn't matter. They just missed the mark they were trying to hit. Now, the mark that God has set for us, it is righteousness as seen in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments make up God's moral law, the foundation of all that is right and wrong about how we are to live in our relationship with God and our relationship with others. When we look at the law, the Ten Commandments, in light of the the letter of the law and the spirit of the law, we're all forced to admit that we have missed the mark. We have not perfectly kept God's righteous standards. And the idea of having kept God's righteous standards, it's not that on a one day we had this really wonderful day, and on that day we kept the standards. No, the, the idea is that we have kept the standards from the time we were born. And we never had a moment that we fell short. But we were never angry without cause. We never lusted in our heart. We never coveted for anything. We never put anything other than God as the number one priority in our lives. We never have done any of that stuff. But we have. We have all missed the mark. We have all broken God's law. And we are all justly called sinners. Because of this. Now powerless. Godless. Sinner. Those are terrible words. That is a terrible picture of humanity. This picture of humanity is hard on human pride and self-righteousness. Because we don't want to believe we're powerless. We want to think we can fix ourselves. It's hard on self-righteousness because we don't want to believe we're sinners. Other people are, but not us. This picture of humanity is, is often offensive. And yet this is the picture of humanity that Scripture paints. To understand, to accept Scripture is to accept that those terms refer to all people outside of Jesus Christ. And as bad as those terms are, we will never understand the Gospel unless we understand that those terms are true of us and of everyone else. We will never understand be amazed at God's love for us unless we recognize that these words are true. Accurate descriptions of us and all of humanity apart from Jesus Christ. If we want to be able to assure someone that God loves them, we must understand that God loves sinners, powerless And godless people. If we want people to be amazed. At the fact God loves them. We must be sure. That all people apart from Christ. Are powerless. Godless. And sinners. And yet God still loves them. We will never be amazed at the gospel. We will never be amazed at what Jesus has done. Unless we embrace. These terms as true. God. God's love. Is boundless. Secondly, God's love is sacrificial. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That the cross demonstrates God's relentless love for humanity because the cross is where Jesus died for powerless, godless sinners. And think how amazing that really is. That the holy and the awesome God of the Bible loves you and I enough to send His only begotten Son to come and die for us. Not as good people who loved Him back. Not as people who sought to do His will and tried to find His will for our lives. But as powerless people. As godless people. As sinful people. To being amazed at that is the point that Paul is trying to make in verse 7 and 8. In verse 7, he says, "...for scarcely..." For a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps, for a good man, someone would even dare to die. Now in these verses, Paul contrasts what God has done for us in Christ and what we might do for others under certain circumstances. And Paul says, Scarcely for a righteous person will someone die. But perhaps, for a good person, someone would dare to die. Now, I grew up, and all of my life, all I ever wanted to be was a soldier, so I grew up reading war books. The books I, I read focused on World War II and Vietnam, and they were even more narrowly focused on infantry soldiers. Now, when you read books like that, or when you watch shows about those sort of, about the wars and about soldiers and those situations, you find a lot of accounts of, of men giving their lives to save their brothers. Guys who will sacrifice their life by jumping on a grenade to save their squad. Or when a group is pinned down, one will jump up and run towards the machine gun nest and take the bullets so that the others can move in and accomplish the mission and be saved. Every Good War book and every Good War story has at least one story of someone sacrificing his life for his team. And when we read that, we can start to think, well, that's, that's kind of normal. I mean, that's just the way things are. And when we interpret the world in that situation, in, in that light, we miss the point that Paul was making in verse 7. Right? We, we think that that's how the world is, and then we look at what Paul says, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, but perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. How can you mean perhaps? And how can you mean scarcely? When there are literally thousands of books that give us thousands of accounts of real people who did just this. What thinking misses the point? Think for a second about how many people you know. Well, probably we all know thousands of people. Now, narrow that list down to people you love. Now, that narrows it down to to probably hundreds of people. Now, narrow the list even further to people you're willing to die for. Now, that probably narrows the list down to probably a very few people, doesn't it? The people that we would willingly give our lives so that they could live. But the people that we would die for, they're probably people that we love. And that love us. They're people that we care for, and they care for us. They're people that that we do good for them, and they do good for us. How many of the people that you're willing to die for, are hateful towards you? How many of the people that you're willing to die for, cuss you? How many of the people that you're willing to die for, despise you, neglect you, reject you? Probably no one, if we're honest. The picture in verses 6, 7, and 8, it's not the picture of a soldier dying for one of his buddies. And it's not the picture of a mother dying for her child. And it's not the picture of a child dying for their parent. A better picture... is of a mother dying for the person who murdered her child. See, the, the, the picture in these verses, it's not that God sent Jesus to die for good people who loved Him, and cared for Him, and sought to do His will. It is that God sent Jesus to die for powerless people. For ungodly people, for sinful people. Verse 10 For people who were his enemies. Don't look at this and think, this is a mom laying down her life for her child. No. Nope. This is a mom laying down her life, going to the electric chair for the person who murdered her child. Jesus did not come and die for the morally upright who loved Him and were devoted to Him. Jesus came and died for powerless, godless sinners because He loved them. Not because He had to. That's a huge thing for me. We often think, well, yeah, but God had to do that. No. No, God did not have to do that. There There is nothing that made God have to do this. This was a a free decision by a sovereign God. That there is no power greater than God that compelled him to make this happen. It is simply God looking down at us in that condition knowing the wrath to come and saying, I love them too much. Something has to happen. Jesus coming to die in our place, willingly, voluntarily, because he loved us. When we see God's love in this light, how can we not? How can we not be amazed by that? When we see God's love in this light, how can we not love him back? When we see God in this God's love in this light, how can we not keep him as the supreme object of devotion in our lives? When we see God's love in this light how could we not give him anything and everything he asks of us? When we see God's love in this light how could we not do anything and everything he asks us to do? When we see God's love in this light how could we not serve him with every fiber of our beings? When we see God's love in this light how could we not tell others about the relentless sacrificial love of God? For powerless, godless sinners. God's love is boundless. God's love is sacrificial. And God's love is redemptive. There's something that happens because God loves us. Let's say we believe that the cross demonstrates God's relentless love for humanity. Because the cross is where Jesus died for powerless, godless sinners. Let's also say we embrace that. We turn and we we say, I have sinned, and Jesus, I, I want what you have done to cover my sin. What difference does that actually make in our lives? What is the result of embracing the death of Christ for our sins? Paul lays out the difference in verses nine through eleven. First is that God justifies Verse 9, much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. We have been justified by his blood. Now justification is a a neat term in the Bible. And it's where God declares a believing sinner to be righteous because of faith in Jesus' sinless life and sacrificial death and victorious resurrection. Now when we speak of justification, of God declaring us to be righteous, we have to understand what we're not saying. Justification isn't God saying you weren't guilty. No, no, we were guilty. Justification is not God saying it wasn't that severe. Nope. It was that severe. We were powerless, godless sinners. Justification. Is God crediting the righteousness of Jesus Christ into our account? Taking away our sin and our guilt out of our account and placing the righteousness of Jesus Christ in there so that we are accounted by God to God as righteous through Jesus Christ. Our justification is always based upon Jesus. Jesus lived a sinless life and fulfilled the law. We did not. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty that our sins deserved. We did not. Our sins earned a wage. And that wage is death. And on the cross, Jesus became our substitute. He took the wages that our sin had earned. He took the punishment that we deserve because of our powerlessness, our ungodliness, our sinfulness. And after he had taken all of the punishment for all of our sin, he died. He was taken off the cross and he was laid in a tomb where he laid for three days. And on the third day, he victoriously arose from the tomb. As a mighty declaration that He was the Son of God who had the power to forgive sins and give eternal life. When we repent of our sins and believe on Jesus Christ, God transfers our guilt to the cross and He transfers Jesus' righteousness to us. At this point, God makes a declaration that we are justified, we are Righteous. Through our faith in Jesus Christ. And it's always because of Jesus Christ. It's not a righteousness based upon our good deeds. It's not a righteousness based upon our own goodness. It's not a righteousness based upon us at all. It is a righteousness based wholly and completely on Jesus Christ and what He has done. That is justification. But notice what Paul goes on to say. Much more then, having now been justified by His blood. So right now we are justified, but there's something else that's going to come. We shall be saved from wrath through Him. Because we are right now justified, we shall be saved from the wrath to come. The Bible speaks that at the end of all things, there is a wrath to come. And the Bible speaks of it in at least two different ways. That there is a, a measure of God's wrath that is poured out on the earth. And you find this in Revelation 6 through 19. That after this, God will finally and fully pour out His wrath for all of eternity. And that's described in Revelation 20, 11 through 15, where the, the books are opened and they stand before the great white throne and those whose names are not in the books are cast in the lake of fire for all of eternity. This is the certain future for all who reject Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now, the wrath on earth in Revelation 6 through 19 is often described or called the tribulation period. And if you Read those passages. You've studied about the tribulation period. You know that is not a happy time. It is bad. And as bad as that time is, what the Bible speaks about in Revelation 20, 11 through 15 is much, much worse. And I believe they are far worse than our minds can comprehend. I do not believe... The human mind is capable of fathoming how horrible God's wrath against sin will actually be. God's wrath against sin, it is a terrible, fearful thing to contemplate. However, those who have been justified through faith in Jesus have no reason to fear. For they will be saved from the wrath to come. Now, there is an encouragement and a challenge in that. The encouragement is, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, those are not for you. The believer in Jesus Christ never experiences the wrath of God against sin. Ever. However, those who do not believe in Jesus Christ absolutely will. And there's where the challenge lies. Our friends and our relatives and our associates and our neighbors and our co-workers and our children and our grandchildren and our uncles and our aunts. If they do not repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ, they will face the wrath to come. Nothing But Jesus saves. Not morals. Not nationality. Not church attendance. Not church membership. Not baptism. Jesus. That's why we invite. That's why we pray for Easter. That's why we do all that we can to bring as many as we can to church. Because they will be given a chance to hear about Jesus. To believe in Jesus. To be justified. Because of Jesus. And to be saved from the wrath to come. So God justifies. But God also reconciles. Verse 9. Verse 10. But for when we were enemies. We were reconciled to God. For the death of His Son. Much more having been reconciled. We shall be saved. By His life. The word reconcile. It means to be brought into friendship. From a state of Disagreement. Or enmity. In other words, we go from what he says, being an enemy of God in verse 10 and, and lots of other places in the New Testament to being the friends of God. Jesus' death and resurrection not not only brings an end to hostilities between us and God, but it then turns us into the friend of God. I mean, that to me is a fantastic thing, thing to contemplate. I mean, it is one thing To get over hating someone, right? To get over being the enemy of someone. But to go from being an enemy to a friend, well, that's huge, right? I mean, probably, think about it just on a natural level. There are people that at various times in our lives, we've hated for one reason or another, we've been in opposition to one another and maybe that enmity came to an end maybe it came to the place where we were no longer angry they weren't angry at us but did we go back to being actually friends in many cases we just did not the friendship part was over never to be had again but what jesus does is he takes us and really the it's not that god is our enemy But it's through our our ungodliness, through our sinfulness, that we are the enemy of God. We position ourselves as God's enemies. God is working to bring us to Himself. God is working to save us. God is working to forgive us and give us life. But we are saying, no, no, I don't want what you offer. I don't want what you have. I don't want you to rule over my life. No, I don't want you. We position ourselves as His enemies. And Jesus brings an end to that hostility. And He brings us into the place where we are supposed to be. We are supposed to be friends with God. I mean, this is what God intended. You read the book of Genesis. After God created man and put them in the garden. There was meant to be a, a relationship there, a love-based relationship, but sin, sin wrecked that relationship. Sin destroyed it. But God wasn't content to leave us in a wrecked relationship, so Jesus came. And He came to, to fix what was broken. To end our hostility and bring us to the place that we were supposed to be, that we are the friends of God. Of Almighty God. Through Jesus. We are meant and we are able to confidently say, I am a friend of God. So how do we know? I mean, how do I know if I'm really a friend of God? How can I be sure that, that I'm justified and I've been reconciled? There's a lot of ways. You could read First John. First John has a series of tests. Those who do this have eternal life and things like that. It's very good. But there's also a good test in verse 11. It says, and not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. So not only are we justified and reconciled, but we are able to rejoice in God through Jesus Christ. Now, I like the way the message paraphrase puts verse 11. Now that we have actually received this amazing friendship with God, we are no longer content to simply say it in plotting prose. But we sing and shout our praises to God through Jesus, the Messiah. The New Living Translation in this verse says that we rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because of Jesus Christ. So let's think about how we maybe how we sang this morning. Would we classify the way we sang as plotting prose, or would we classify it as shouting and singing our praise? How would we classify our relationship with God? Would we call it an amazing friendship, a wonderful new relationship? Or it's just something that's there. How we answer those questions, it says a lot. About whether or not we've been justified and reconciled. And we'll be saved from the wrath to come. Our praise to God should be shouting and singing and not plotting prose. Our relationship to God should be wonderful and amazing and not just, meh, it's there. I mean, think about that again in a human relationship. What does it say about our marriage? If our talking about our spouse is plotting prose and not rejoicing and happy in who they are and what they are, what does it say about our marriage if rather than having a wonderful, amazing relationship, it's just, ah, uh, you know, very life. Right? Surely we would recognize our marriage was off if that's how we would describe it. Much more than shouldn't we recognize our relationship with God is off if that's how we describe it. I don't have time to get into it this morning, but you should do a deep study of how God thinks about His relationship with us. You know, the Bible speaks of like God singing over us, rejoicing in us. Those are big things being jealous for us, passionate about His relationship with us. If Almighty God feels that way about us, how much more should we feel that way about Him? And when we don't, something is wrong, not with God, but with us. Let me close with a story. In the 1800s, the wife of a wealthy Railroad executive was traveling around Europe, enjoy shopping for the latest fashions. One day while she was shopping, she sent a message by telegraph with the following request. Dearest Clarence, I've come across the most exquisite diamond necklace in Paris, but it cost $10,000. The husband quickly replied, no, comma, price too high, exclamation point. Unfortunately, when the telegraph operator received the message on the other side of the Atlantic, he failed to include the comma. The wife was delighted when she received a message stating no price too high. And so she purchased her treasure, reveling in the thought of how much her husband loved her. The redemption of the human race cost God the death of his only son on a cruel cross. But we can rejoice knowing that God did not pause or hesitate when it came time to pay the price for the sins of the world, his, his answer was no price too high. Let's stand as our musicians come forward.